Our text of emphasis today is found in the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. And it says there this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming out from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider these words, help us to understand more about you and more about ourselves and each other. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been around here the last uh, couple of weeks, you know that uh, we're in the midst of our fall sermon series, Revelation, an Apocalypse of Apocalyptic Proportions. We're having a good time. I'm having a good time. I hope you're having a good time. Anytime we get an owl. 
I was a staff member though. I was a paid owl, so that feels a little cheap, cheapened, but thank you, Kyle. That's good. We're having a good time. So two weeks ago, we looked at uh, Revelation chapter uh, 4 and 5, the enthronement scene of Jesus after his ascension. You can uh, go back and watch at watch.avenhope.org. There, uh, Jesus opens these mysterious uh, seals, or he, he's the one who's able to open the seals, it's revealed, to this scroll. And so Revelation chapter 6, which we won't read today, but you can read at home, goes into somewhat great detail about the implications of Jesus opening these seals that sealed this uh, scroll. There are the uh, infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse in that telling in Revelation chapter 6. There are uh, the souls of those who are crying for justice in the world and calling for uh, God's judgment. In effect, Revelation chapter uh, 6 is a survey of uh, the, the state of world affairs from the time of Jesus' enthronement until Jesus' uh, second coming. And so Revelation chapter 7, which we just read, follows this uh, dramatic scene of Revelation chapter 6. Um, and it ends, Revelation 6 ends with the sixth seal being opened, which is the, the scene of Jesus' second coming, of Jesus coming again. So Revelation chapter 6 is pretty uh, graphic stuff. You have the proclamation of the gospel, but then you have a war, and you have pestilence, and you have uh, death. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. Revelation chapter 6, it's pretty uh, graphic stuff. And so Revelation chapter 7 uh, follows immediately after the description of the day of the Lord, which uh, was an Old Testament concept that was referring to the the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, the final coming of, of Jesus, the Messiah. And so Revelation chapter 6 ends with a, an important question, a rhetorical question. Who can stand at the end? Who can stand at the end? So all of these graphic and, and challenging and quite frankly terrible things are to happen in the world. Who can stand? Who is going to be able to to make it? What kind of person uh, makes it to whatever else is to come? Now, I think this is a really intriguing uh, question, a question that humanity has been wrestling with in some form or the other for in the entirety of human history. Who, who's going who's gonna to make it to whatever is, is next? It's uh, interesting, I think, also that uh, most world uh, philosophies have the world ending at some point in some uh, way, whether it's uh, the reverse of the the Big Bang. What is that? The big the big crunch. You know, the big the Big Bang is the expansion of the universe, and there are are, are those cosmologists who say, well, you know, at some point it's going to start uh, constricting end of the world. So whether you're in that camp or you think that uh, a, a social or a political or ecological problems will bring the, the end, most philosophies think that at some point human history as we know it is going to, to end. And so this question is of 
who's going to make it to the next level, if anybody makes it, is, is a, a, a universal question. Who will stand? Who will stand at the end? Now, there's a number of uh, responses to that question. I, we can't wrestle with them all today, so I have just a couple to, uh, to share with you. The, uh, the first response to that question, uh, who will stand at the end, is from the naturalist. And uh, the naturalist says, well, the strongest will stand. The, the fittest, the smartest will, will stand. Whatever is to, to come, and provided that what's to come, someone can actually survive that, it's going to be the strongest or the fittest or the smartest that is going to make it to whatever is uh, to, to come. Now, undoubtedly, there is some truth in this uh, reality. Any New Yorker will tell, tell you that uh, your ability to be, to be strong and, and smart will help you overcome all of the challenges of living in New York. You know what I'm talking about? You guys remember Pizza Rat? Pizza Rat? Do we have the picture of Pizza Rat? There's Pizza Rat, a civic hero. I mean, op-eds in, 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 in important journals were written about Pizza Rat, the little guy, making it in, in, the, in the big city, using his, his smarts somewhere in the sewers of New York, Pizza Rat still lives, I want to believe. He still lives, eating his pizza. The fit, the strong, survives. So undoubtedly, there's an element of, of truth to that, but when it comes to, to end things, I mean, the strongest, the smartest, the, the fittest, is that who's going to sur survive? This notion took somewhat of a, a hit uh, this week. The journal uh, Nature uh, released some research done by some scientists, and they said that apparently, or in their opinion, it looks that uh, we have reached the maximum capacity of our human lifespan, and that it's probably somewhere between 110 and 125 years old. I mean, that's, that's the expiration date for most of us. And the research goes something like this. While people are living longer, generally, People are living longer, generally, 70s, 80s, and, and being more healthful in their, in their old age, and that more people are living longer. What's not happening is people, in general, aren't living more than the oldest person that has ever lived. That's not happening. More people are living longer, but there's not a huge gap in people living much, much longer. The, um, the oldest recorded woman, Jean Calumet from France died a couple years ago at 122. Now, I like to think that this had something to do with baguettes. She's French. I was the pleasure of being in France and, and, and Paris last, the, the, this year, this year. And wow, have you ever had a, a baguette from, um, from Paris? I mean, that's something not to be missed. You were just there. You were telling me. Just a few, you, you ate one just a few. I, I would like to think you, a few weeks of life were given to you for eating that, that you have gained 
some. You feel great, exactly, you feel great. So Jean Calumet, 122, this, those baguettes just helped her live a long life. But the, the researchers saying, look, people are not living much longer than that. In fact, she even is unusual. 110 to 125, that's the expiration date for uh, most of us. Who will stand? Wow. All right, so the naturalists, well, the strongest, the fittest, the smartest, but even that has an, an end. Now, you might say, well, individual surviving isn't the, the point. It's the, it's the species that needs to keep going. Fair, fair enough, but the, the problem with that philosophy, in my opinion, is that individual dignity can be uh, lost. The dignity that every human being has, has a potential for more, that we all have a right to, to survive and flourish for longer than just 122 years. And so it seems to me that there are some troubling philosophical and ethical problems with, the, uh, with this proposal. But this is certainly one. The strongest, the smartest, the fittest. That's who will stand at the end if there is an end and there's an ability to move on. Secondly, the second philosophy uh, is from the moralist. The ones who say that the most moral people, they are the ones who will will survive. That the higher power, whatever that is, however will, uh, that is, is defined, will ensure that the most moral people will be the ones to, to survive whatever is to come. And so moralism is, is a very, very prominent backbone to a lot of the philosophies, a lot of the religions which we're familiar with as uh, humans. The idea that uh, those who do well, that do the right thing, that they are the ones who are going to be rewarded in the end. The most moral, the most uh, good, the one who has helped the most people, and uh, so on. I would go as far to say that a lot of what we think of as uh, Christianity is really nothing more than a moralism. Moralism, in fact, many have approached the Christian faith as a faith of moral teaching. Be a good person. Jesus was a moral guy, and he teaches us how to be moral. This is moralism. And so your ability to stand at the end is based on your ability to be moral. And so we have the naturalist who says the strongest, the smartest, the fittest. We have the moralist who says that those who are the most moral, they'll, they'll be the ones to, to stand in the end. And so these uh, two prominent philosophies um, propose these two angles as to answering this existential question, who will stand? But our question is, what does the apocalypse have to say about this issue of who will stand? This, this book, this, this letter, this vision which this apostle John received late in his life, what does this have to say about this issue of who will stand? And so again, we look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. And John, who is in exile on this island of Patmos and has a supernatural vision, however that happens. And he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing up on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now, 
Bible students who look at this say this is clearly trying to indicate that what's being talked about here has, has a, a, a worldwide effect. The four winds, just like the four corners of the earth. The idea is this is something that is taking place over the entire world. John goes on, then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then he goes on to tell what he heard, that he heard this number, 144,000, and then he hears these other numbers, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, and this in his, in his Israelite brain is triggering some, some memories. Remember we said before that uh, Revelation is full of, of references to the, the past, of, of, of nostalgia. So John is, is hearing these these numbers and hearing these names and he's having some nostalgia because this is talking about his people, the Israelites, and it's specifically the, talking about the way that they might have been arranged in the, in the camp after they came out of Egypt as slaves with the, the tabernacle in the midst of them. And so they're arranged in these camps, 12,000 and 12,000, and you get to this 144,000. But then it says that he looked up. And when he looked there before him was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, and people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I'd suggest to you that these two groups are one in the same. John hears Israelites, and he hears 12,000 and 12,000 and 12,144. But when he looks up, he sees a great multitude that no one could count. This is not the first time that this imagery has been used. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, John was there, and he was looking at that scroll with the seals that couldn't be opened, and he was weeping. And then an elder comes and says, hey, don't, don't, don't weep. There's a lion from the tribe of Judah, and he's, he can open this. And it says that John looked, but when he looked, he didn't see a line, he saw a lamb. You remember that? We talked about that two weeks ago. So this idea of hearing and, and seeing two different things. And so these, this group of people from every nation and tribe and language and people, and they're wearing white robes and holding uh, palm branches in their hand. We don't do much holding of palm branches anymore. <laughs> but when you hold a palm branch, it means you're celebrating uh, something. You're celebrating something uh, big. There's a, there's a, there's a parade happening. Kyle, I'm just going to mention it again, just because we got to get it out. Kyle and I are rooting for the same, we're rooting for the same baseball teams this year. We will not be holding palm branches in their honor this year because they, they next year, yes, next year, a good baseball fan is always optimistic about the future. Kyle, you were there at the game in which the Washington Nationals lost, sadly. And so no, no palm branches for, for you and me. But you hold palm branches, that's something you, when you're celebrating. And the, the team who wins the World Series, they come, you know, rolling down Broadway. That's not going to happen this year either because no New York team is in. But they rolled it and you, and you have your palm branches and you wave. And so this is a scene of celebration. The person who is there with uh, John asks him uh, a question. 
He says, who are these people? These, these people in the white robe. And in verse 14, John says, hey, I don't know. You're the one who's supposed to be telling me what's going on. You, who are these people? And this elder says, uh, these are those who have come out of all the problems that took place in Revelation chapter 6. They, they've come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people, according to the apocalypse, who are able to stand when everything is said and done at the end. These are the people. And so that leads us to the next question, and that is, all right, we're getting a picture here from the apocalypse of who will stand at the end. But what are the attributes of these people? That's what we really want to know. How do you stand? Not just who will stand, but how do you stand in the end? What are the attributes of those people who are going to stand at the end of time? And we read in verse 10 that these this people, this group, they cry out in a loud voice, Rescue belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This group who are standing at the end, they get something. And then in verse 14, it describes them again. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. These are those who are able to stand. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down them on them or scorch them. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water. What are the attributes of those who stand at the end? The apocalypse is very clear. They've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've made a conscious decision that they're going to embrace God's work on their behalf and not rely on their own. This is the implication. See, they understand that God has done something for them that they cannot do for themselves. They wash their, 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 their robes in the blood of the Lamb. God did something for them they can't do for themselves, and they're going to embrace this work. What is the attribute, according to the apocalypse, of those who are able to stand at the end? It's very simple. It's not that they're the strongest or the smartest or the fittest or the most moral. It's that they embrace God's work on their behalf. They allow him to clean themselves, to clean their robes, with his blood, his action, his death. Because Jesus died, we have hope for the future, and when we embrace that work, we're able to stand at the end. This is the implication of the apocalypse. This is the apocalypse's response to who can stand at the end. 
the only one who can stand is the person who is embracing God's work on their behalf. You're not going to stand because you're the most moral. Have you ever tried to be the most moral, by the way? First of all, it's very irritating. Because usually you're not very good at it. But then the fact that you're trying to be good at it makes everybody else irritated. I'm not saying don't be moral. (laughs) Be moral. Don't be irritating about it. The reality is you're not very good at being moral on your own. Are you the, the smartest? Are you the strongest? Are, the, are you the fittest in your workplace? Even, even in your workplace, are you the strongest? I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you've reached the height of your career field, but that's a few of you. But even then, there's always somebody stronger or fitter or smarter than you. You think you're the smartest person? Who's the smartest person that they know around here? Anybody? You're the smartest person you know? Somebody's always, this is New York, there's somebody always smarter than you. There's somebody always stronger than you. There's somebody always fitter than you. There's probably somebody more moral than you. We could say that even in this context of Christians, there's probably people who are more moral than you who may know nothing about what it means to be Christian. Those who are able to stand in the end according to the apocalypse are not the most moral. They're not the strongest or the fittest or the smartest. They're those who embrace God's work in Jesus. And when that happens, when we embrace that and we wear this new kind of clothing, God works and does something in our experience and makes us capable to stand in the end. But even that is God's work. This is the story of the apocalypse. There are two implications of this, at least two. I'll suggest two. First of all, again, your ability to be strong and smart and moral does not fit into the equation for your ultimate survival. So if you're here today and you've been uh, working on achieving your merit, and you haven't felt like you're ever enough, there's hope for you. If you've been uh, looking to, to gain merit in your, in your work, in your career field, if you've been uh, looking for merit in a relationship, if you've been trying to achieve merit from God himself, there's good news today. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work to get it. That's not how it it works. God presents himself as a loving parent. A parent doesn't ask their children to prove themselves. That's not a good parent, by the way. A parent who asks and doesn't give love until a child proves themselves. That's, That's a bad parent. And so if you feel like you don't measure up in this world, that there, there's something missing in all your striving, this is good news. Uh, the second implication is this. There's no reason for fear for the future. You know, we live in an environment right now and I'll say a political environment, but it's not just 
political. It's certainly a spiritual environment. It has implications for everything that is full of fear. People are afraid. You might be afraid. I get it. There are scary things going on in the world. There are scary people in this world. There are scary philosophies in this world. But the good news of the apocalypse is in ultimate things, you have no reason to be afraid. If you've embraced God's work on your behalf, there is hope for your future. You don't have to be the strongest or the fittest or the smartest or the most moral. God has done something for you you cannot do for yourself. And this is good news and should relieve us of our existential fear. You don't have to earn it. And that means that we can live without fear. Today, you have the opportunity, if you've been living this way, looking for merit, fearful about your future, to embrace what God has done in Jesus and to embrace what God wants to do in your experience as you take a hold of his work. And the, 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 the mystery of the gospel is that once you embrace God, he starts working in, in you to make you into a new creation. Embrace God's work. Stop obsessing about your own. This is the key to being able to stand today and in the future. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your willingness to reveal yourself to us. Help us embrace your work today in Jesus' name. Amen.